my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you. I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Uh, it's episode 298. And um, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm having a horrible week. I'm having the the worst week I've had in 2020, actually. Somehow, somehow, it's it's just been terrible. A uh, ton of death, a ton of loss, um, and it's just been weird. It started in a weird way. Uh, maybe the the least consequential death of the week was my pet mouse, uh, which you're like, what? Is that you have a pet? Yeah, I have a couple pet mice, and I was really excited. My pet mouse was pregnant, and uh, it was my favorite mouse. She had a messed up ear, like a little birth effect was black and white. And you're like, eh, it's a pet mouse. I get it. Uh, she was pregnant. I was like, we're going to have pet baby mice. That'll be cute and interesting and fun. Um, and, and don't worry, the story goes a lot farther than just pet mice. But I, uh, my pet mouse had her babies, and um, they were stillborn. You know, like, well, I mean, again, they're mice. It's it's awful. It's like sad. It's brutal. Um, but then my my favorite mouse um, wouldn't eat, wouldn't drink anything, uh, and I was trying to like give her food and trying to give her water, and it's like a little like there's nothing you can do. It's a tiny mouse. And uh, woke up Sunday morning, she was dead, and, and that's like not a fun way to start your football day. <laughs> and I just uh, it was like a punch in the gut. Like, look, it's a stupid mouse. I I get you're like, dude, it's a mouse. Um, still, it was sad, it was brutal, it was depressing, um, and, and that was the first punch in the gut of a couple more to happen in the week. Um, next, a family friend died in a car accident, and it was someone that I, um, I, I was worried about for a while, and I, 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 it was, just, it sucked. Loss is terrible, it's not fun, um, and, and just another, you know, punch in the gut number two, and, and number three, um, was uh, my grandpa died. My uh, He had a heart attack and died. And that's uh, the most painful loss. Um, you, you may have, I, I've never said this on the show. My grandpa listened to Strong Opinion Sports, and it meant a lot to me. Uh, I taught him how to use the stupid app on his phone, and he, he was a faithful listener of the show. Um, and he, he was a baseball guy, knew nothing about football, but he listened because I think, I, I don't know, I, I always felt like we connected that way. And I used to visit him in the summer. And the way my grandpa and I would hang out, we watched Mariners games together, Mariners baseball games, pretty much every single day. And um, it sucks. I mean, I'm just, I'm sad. You know, my grandpa's not listening to this episode. And it's the first one in a long time. And I didn't know how much that meant to me until my grandpa wasn't listening uh, to the show. And it's not cool. It's not fun. Um, you know, my grandparents live about seven hours north by the Canadian border. And uh, I have a lot of regret about this. Uh, and, and I hope you learn from what I'm about to say. I was planning to go see my grandparents in August. Uh, and not planning. I was really hoping I could find the time to make it happen. And I didn't find the time. I didn't make the time. Look, I'm self-employed. I work from home. I make my own schedule. Uh-huh. And I, I I didn't make the time to go see my grandpa. I was so busy getting ready for football season, and I honestly, I just have deep regret that I didn't make that happen. So I, I encourage you, don't make the mistake I made. 
Um, go, if you care about somebody, don't wait to see them. Don't wait to tell them. Um, and if you wait till you know, there's, quote, a better time, they may not be around uh, for that better time when it's more convenient for you. So I know COVID complicates things. Um, you know, make your own decisions. But I, the least I could have done was call the guy. Um, and I, I, I didn't even do that. And I, I just, um, just a lot of regret. And, and this is the third grandparent I've lost. Uh, old people die. Pet mice die. It still hurts, especially grandparents and pet mice are not even related. I don't know how I, I don't know why I said that, but I just, it, these are, you they're deaths you can expect. Like old people die. Your pet mouse, it's going to die. You know that's going to happen. They're, and I, it just, it still hurts every single time. No matter how much you prepare for it, you can kind of prepare. Doesn't feel good. My grandpa was a cool dude. He was an engineer. He built planes for the military. Had amazing stories. And one of my biggest regrets is I always told myself I was going to do a podcast with him someday, record some of his stories. Um, I never did that either. So I encourage you, um, learn from me. Don't wait. Um, go see that person. Tell them you love them. Give them a hug. Uh, I know COVID's out there, but make your own decisions. I just, uh, I regret not going to see my grandpa. So I, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I, it's been a hard week, and uh, that's on my heart. I wanted to share it. I, I think, um, I don't know. It's sad that, I'm, I don't know. As I, look, I've been dealing with heartache all week. Uh, I did get around to watch every single game from NFL Week 7. And it, it took a lot longer than normal sports for me have always been an escape away from reality. And sometimes reality is so painful that even my escape doesn't work. Um, and uh, that, that's my heart. I shared my heart. I, I That's the intro to the show. That's why it's Thursday morning uh, and I hadn't recorded an episode yet this week. Um, I want to dive in. I, look, I I want to flush it. I Flush is the wrong word there. I'll probably do some more crying after the show. But I really... I'm genuinely excited. I got a great show, like a banger of a show today. Really good stuff. A lot, a lot of stuff is happening in the NFL. And some of the stuff, there's rumors going on. Like I just read a a rumor that Sam Darnold might get traded to the Colts. I have no idea. We'll see if that happens. I'm not going to really report on that because who knows. Uh, We'll wait till there. I'm excited for the trade deadline when there are concrete things going on. Uh, But technically this episode... Is uh, predictions versus reality, where I compare my predictions from last week to what actually happened, the reality of what happened. And I want to dive into week seven because it was a really wonderful week of football, all things aside. So let's start with the Patriots and the 49ers. Patriots, 49ers. I went into this game expecting the Patriots to bounce back. Two weeks ago against the Denver Broncos, the Patriots were terrible. I'm like, okay. I'm like, the Patriots, especially their defense, cannot have two really bad weeks in a row. This is a Bill Belichick coach team. I really expected them to bounce back. Uh, and I was also very skeptical of Jimmy Garoppolo, the 49ers quarterback, going into this game. Well, the 49ers won 33-6. to um, The Patriots did not bounce back. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, I, I think this game really made me realize that I need to judge Jimmy Garoppolo differently. Jimmy G has very average, if not even below average, arm talent. 
meaning he doesn't drive the ball very well downfield. He's not going to have the best deep ball ever in the NFL or even close. And I, I've never been impressed with the way Jimmy Garoppolo throws the ball against man coverage downfield. Like, he just, if you need a guy to throw a 30-yard ball to beat man coverage to win a game, Jimmy Garoppolo is the last person, at least one of the last people I would choose in the NFL to make that throw. And in a traditional offense, I wouldn't love Jimmy Garoppolo. But then I realized watching the Patriots game, I'm like, okay, the 49ers offense is not a traditional offense. The 49ers system, their play design, it so creatively generates yards, their motions, the way that they run screen plays, the way that Jimmy Garoppolo throws the ball behind the line of scrimmage a ton. And he had like two, I think he had like 277 yards passing, an absurdly high number. Dinkin and Duncan, the entire game because of how well the 49ers generate yards. And that's not to say that he occasionally doesn't throw the ball, I don't know, 13 yards downfield against a zone coverage look. Um, But really, all Jimmy Garoppolo needs to do is be a distributor. He really rarely ever needs to throw the ball more than 15 yards down the field. That's not what the 49ers offense asks him to do. And therefore, you know, watching the 49ers offense, I realized I have to just judge him differently. You can't judge him the same way you would another quarterback because the 49ers offense is not just another offense. And then I realized, okay, the 49ers have dealt with so much adversity this year. A ton of injuries on top of an already difficult year due to COVID. And so in my opinion, the 49ers head coach, Kyle Shanahan, deserves a ton of credit. The guy is just, I mean, look, he smacked the Patriots with a depleted roster. I don't care who you are. The Patriots look awful right now. They're two and four. Fair enough. But you just took Bill Belichick to task. That deserves some respect. And so Kyle Shanahan, so far this year, we're seven weeks in, is my game, is my coach of the year. And then, you know, they're four and three right now. Here are the next five games for the 49ers. The next five games for the Niners are really, really tough. They play. Seattle in week eight, they play the Packers in week nine. Week 10, they play the New Orleans Saints. Week 11, they have a bye week. Week 12, they have the Rams. And week 13, they have the Buffalo Bills. So if by week 14, the 49ers are still somehow in the playoff hunt, then in my opinion, Kyle Shanahan should win coach of the year easily. I go, that's just unbelievable. The job he's already done. And we'll see what he's going to do the rest of the year. They might fall apart. They might get their butts kicked. But again, if the 49ers are in striking distance, whether they make the playoffs or not, if they're still in the hunt come week 14 after these next five games, I think it's, I'm sold. Kyle Shanahan should win coach of the year. Now, the Patriots' offense was horrible on Sunday. Um, Cam Newton had three interceptions. One of them was a, a play where he was extending the play outside the pocket, made a bad decision. Another throw was vertically downfield in a double coverage. It wasn't there. I, I think maybe he was trying to push the ball vertically before halftime, but it wasn't a Hail Mary, although it kind of might have... It, it wasn't a Hail Mary situation, so it was just a bad decision. And then his third interception was a ball a tad behind Julian Edelman. Got tipped up the air, intercepted. And so three bad throws by Cam Newton led to three interceptions. Jarrett Stidham came in the game. They were down 33-6. to six. They're like, let's put in the backup, Jarrett Stidham. He also had an interception. And the question needs to be asked about New England, what's the problem? Is it the car or is it the driver? 
Is it the quarterback or is it the offense around him? And last year, I kept getting bombarded with messages and people sending me articles. And I literally did a whole film analysis trying to debunk all the stuff I was getting sent where people keep te- kept telling me Tom Brady was falling off of a cliff. And I said, no way. I, I-, I told people Tom Brady has no weapons on offense. Now in Tampa Bay, by the way, Tom Brady went to the Buccaneers, just had five touchdowns on Sunday. I think Tom Brady's playing pretty well. In my opinion, all Tom Brady needed was a couple of weapons. And look at where the Patriots are without Tom Brady and still with no weapons. Julian Edelman just got hurt, apparently. Uh, They have no real tight end. They have no vertical outside receiver. Nikhil Harry's been incredibly disappointing. So the Patriots have no weapons. They They need weapons. And I don't feel comfortable blaming Cam Newton for a guy who is like, my hands are tied. I got nothing to work with. I don't have the tools I need. I see Cam Newton forcing balls downfield because he's desperate trying to make something happen. Tom Brady couldn't make it work. Cam Newton couldn't make it work. In the limited two drives we saw Jarrett Stidham, he threw an interception as well. When's the last time the Patriots had four passing interceptions in one game? The Patriots' offense is a mess. They need weapons. It's been a ne- I've been saying this now. This is my third year in a row saying the Patriots need to get offensive weapons, particularly last year. Last year was awful. Two years ago, they had, ooh, they had Rob Gronkowski. Wow. One tight end and a slot receiver. That's all they had. And last year, they didn't even have Gronk. It's ridiculous. Now the Patriots' defense is also a mess. They're really missing some of the key players they lost. They lost Jamie Collins to the Detroit Lions. They lost Kyle Van Noy, another linebacker, to the Dolphins. Basically, the entire Patriots linebacker core is gone because they also had Dante Hightower opt out of the 2020 season due to COVID. Their safety, Patrick Chung, also opted out. And the Patriots are a mess. They're 2-4. and four. Their offense has no weapons. Their defense is depleted. They're missing assignments. I've never seen a Bill Belichick-coached team play this poorly. And I, I don't want to blame, like, Bill Belichick created this roster. He created the problem. But it's also not even all on Bill Belichick because, again, COVID hit. You lost your leaders on defense. So it's just a mess. The Patriots, I feel bad for Cam. I feel bad for Belichick. I think this year was always going to be him trying to cobble together one of the best years he could ever put together given the circumstance. Then it got even worse with COVID. Uh, and, and the Patriots right now, they're two and four. I have very little hope with the Patriots. I, I, I love Bill Belichick. At this point, it feels like they're going back to the drawing board, getting ready for next year and trying to cut their losses. By the way, there was a cool moment in this game, Patriots and 49ers. Uh, Jim Nance, the broadcaster, got the best broadcasting crew in the NFL. So in college, it's Gus Johnson and Joel Klatt. In the NFL, it's uh, Tony Romo and Jim Nance. But Jim Nance, guy I love, Throughout a stat, he said, this is only the second time the Patriots have pulled a quarterback. Bill Belichick has pulled a quarterback due to ineffectiveness in the last however many years in New England. Like a long time. And he pointed out both times a quarterback was pulled due to ineffectiveness was this year with Cam Newton. And Tony Romo, I loved it, stood up for Cam. He said, okay, that's, he's, he said, ineffectiveness is not a stat that you can measure. Like, I'm like, Tony Romo, yeah, my guy. Because people throw out, and again, I love Jim Nance. 
I don't think Jim Nance is at fault here. I think it's really just the culture of statistics. There's no way to measure ineffectiveness. And people throw out statistics all the time that mean basically nothing. This is one of those. And uh, Tony Romo goes, first of all, how do you measure that? You can't. And then he goes, remember the Chiefs-Patriots game a couple years ago where the Patriots got their butts kicked? And Bill Belichick took out Tom Brady, put in Jimmy Garoppolo. What do you call that? Wouldn't that be, quote, ineffectiveness? So therefore, your statistic is wrong anyway. I loved it. Uh, It's not a shot at Jim Nance. It's a shot at the way that the world looks at statistics. And we're always finding weird numbers to fit whatever narrative we're trying to point out. And Jim Nance was trying to do nothing wrong. I thought it was healthy debate. Jim Nance threw out a thing. Tony Roma goes, ah, Jim, I disagree. And it was one of my favorite moments I've ever seen during football because often when people have a disagreement, it's yelling and screaming, especially in the sports media world. They're not going to do that on a broadcast. I thought it was cool. Jim Nance threw out this thing. Tony Romo said that's not accurate. No way. Healthy debate. It was fun. It was interesting. It's one of my favorite moments of the year that nobody's going to care about that I went, ah, yes, Tony Romo. I love you. Thank you. Uh, And it's just one of my favorite moments of the year, that tiny, weird nuance about a statistic ineffectiveness that means nothing and I'm thankful for Tony Romo for pointing that out how about the Buccaneers and the Raiders so going in I said that if the Buccaneers played a clean game they should win and they did the Buccaneers won 45 to 20 they beat the Las Vegas Raiders it was the the John Gruden Tom Brady you know rematch from years ago I don't know I've never I don't really care about that it was was really funny though there was a moment where Derek Carr clearly threw the ball forward. It was ruled a fumble, and they were there was debate about it. And it's like, of course, there's a play like this that resembles the tuck rule uh, for John Gruden's team. Back, harkening back to that Tom Brady, uh, you know, snowy game in New England against the Raiders. And Tom Brady is getting more and more comfortable in the Buccaneers' offense. It's really cool to watch. I think the guy just needed more and more reps. Remember, it was a weird offseason, not a lot of practice time. They did their best. I mean, there were always reports that they're getting together, they're throwing, but the more that Brady has played in this offense, the more comfortable he looks, the more it looks like second nature, the more it looks like he did in New England where he knows exactly where to go with the football. And here's Brady's stat line. I'm not a big stats guy, you know this, but here's the stat line. It's very impressive. Tom Brady was 33 for 45 passing, had 369 yards, Four passing touchdowns, also had a rushing touchdown. I think he's uh, Mark, who said it? Was it Mark Schlereth on the call? Uh, yeah, it was Mark Schlereth, I think, pointed out that Tom Brady might be the best quarterback sneak quarterback in NFL history. That's very possible. I would agree with that. And there's a lot to say here. First of all, it looks like Bruce Arians finally found a quarterback who can be disciplined. Remember, he had Jameis Winston last year. And Brady is doing what Jameis Winston could not do. He's disciplined. He's mastering the offense. His timing looks good. And I, it's funny how the contrast, Jameis Winston never quite seemed to get the hang of the offense and master it the way that Brady has. Brady's already done it in like seven weeks. It's like, of course, there's a message to some degree about work ethic. And I'm sure it helps that he's been in the league forever and understands things, but I think it'd be really fun to do a film analysis comparing Jameis Winston running the exact same plays and the exact same offense to Tom Brady and watch how Tom Brady does it differently and more effectively than Jameis Winston if that is, in fact, what the film would show when I watched the film 
I think that'd be fun. That's a dream video we might make somewhere down the road. I think it'd be really interesting. And my second point here is that Tom Brady's arm looks amazing. And I'm not talking about his muscles or the flexing or the TB12 method. No, his arm strength. I don't know why there was ever any doubt about Tom Brady's arm. Again, last year I kept telling people over and over again, I said, all Tom Brady needs is receivers. This weird cliff thing is just not true. I did a whole film analysis breaking down how Tom Brady was still capable. He just had no weapons outside. Well, finally, Tom Brady has some weapons outside. He looks unbelievable. And Tom Brady's really starting to show how silly that narrative was. The whole, the media made this whole narrative that Tom Brady was falling off of a cliff. Because people that just look at statistics and numbers and don't know football very well would say, well, Tom Brady, clearly the numbers are down. That means bad quarterback. It's like, no, it's bad receivers, not winning matchups. It's a struggling offensive line. It's a lot of problems in New England last year. And uh, I'm telling you, watch the deep ball Tom Brady had right before halftime down the left sideline to Scotty Miller. Oh, my goodness, it was a dime. Just a beautiful throw. And Tom Brady looks so, so good. And my third kind of point here about Tom Brady and it's just a good rule of thumb. There are two people in the sports world. I've had to learn this lesson and relearn it over and over again as I as I go through my career. I'll be at ebb and flow where I doubt LeBron James or I doubt Tom Brady. And and then I and then I make this rule of thumb and then a couple months later I still doubt them again. It's like why do I keep doubting LeBron James? Why do I keep doubting Tom Brady? As a rule of thumb, you we should expect them at this point to defy logic. LeBron James is in, what, year 17? Dominating the NBA, just won the NBA Finals MVP. Tom Brady, killing it at 43 years old. Looks amazing. I, I'm done. I, I'm never, ever again. And I, I probably will break this because I'm an idiot. And I, I'll be like, oh, well, we're starting to see signs. And then Tom Brady will come back and wow us again. Um, I think if you're going to pick a side on Tom Brady, it's probably smart to say, I still have faith in Tom. I would rather be more in than bail early, if that makes sense. Because it seems like Tom Brady's just going to keep doing what he's doing forever. There's no sign really of him slowing down. And both Tom Brady and LeBron, they're pushing age limits in their sport. And I think, again, it's probably smarter to put faith in Tom Brady until he actually shows something that resembles true failure. And I'm talking, he's got to have a bad year. Not a bad game. Not a bad two games. The minute Tom Brady has a full bad year, then I'll say, I'm out. It's not working. But until then, like when Tom Brady has a bad game, inevitably in like week 13, I'm not going to say, Tom Brady, here's the moment. He's getting old. The year has worn him down. He's falling off a cliff. No, no, no. (laughs) I am done doubting Tom Brady. I'm done doubting LeBron James. And I don't think anybody in the right mind should do doubt either of them. And it's worth noting this game, by the way, and we're still talking about the Buccaneers and Raiders. This game was a, I mean, the Buccaneers had the lead 24 to 20 early in the fourth quarter. The Bucs did pull away late, but there was a, I would call it a canary in the coal mine, an early warning sign that the Raiders were going to lose this game by a lot. And it was the fact that if you watch the Raiders running game, Josh Jacobs kept having to fight just to get back to the line of scrimmage. The Raiders could not run the ball effectively 
all game. And the only way the Raiders were staying competitive and moving the football was by getting large chunks throwing the football. And that just is not sustainable for the Raiders' offense. If the Raiders are not running the ball well, it's going to be the canary in the coal mine. If like another, there's another game where they're in it and it's interesting, but they're not running the ball well, that should be your key sign. They're not going to win this football game. Because at the end of the game, the Raiders had 76 yards rushing. That's just an example of how poor it was. They could not run the ball for yards or chunks at all. And when that happens, if you're running the ball not effectively, but you're still using play action, at some point people go, we're not, gonna, we're not interested in that play action. <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're down. You're losing. You're not running the football. You've done it poorly all game. Derek Carr had 19 yards rushing. He was the second leading rusher for the Raiders on Sunday. Josh Jacobs had 10 carries for 17 yards. The le- leading rusher for the Raiders. The leading rusher. The most yards on the team. Jalen Richard, 24 yards. It's not good. And that's the canary in the coal mine. If you're ever watching a Raiders game down the road and they're not running the ball well, that's the early warning sign that the Raiders are not going to win that game. And give it a half before you don't like go one drive and go, hey, they're getting stuffed. You can make an adjustment. But if, if it's the third quarter and they're still not running the ball well and it's still close, it's not going to be close for very much longer. Now, I want to shift gears to this because I, I find it really interesting. Maybe the premier breakup in all of sports this year in 2020 was Tom Brady breaking up with Bill Belichick. They parted ways at the time I went, okay, that's good for both of them. The Patriots, they don't want to pay Tom Brady. They're not all in on him. They don't want to give him what he wants. Anyway, Tom Brady is better off leaving to the Buccaneers, going to get what he wants. Tom Brady wants to play with better receivers. He wants more weapons around him. Tom Brady wants to have more help as he tries to get another Super Bowl. And after seven weeks, Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers are 5-2. And, and Bill Belichick's Patriots, they're 2-4. and four. One's 5-2, and two, one's 2-4. Two and four, And they could not have more opposite, have had more opposite weekends recently. Tom Brady was killing it on Sunday. Had five touchdowns. Four passing and one rushing. A gigantic contrast was the Patriots. They had four interceptions on Sunday. They got destroyed by the 49ers. Tom Brady had a blowout win. Bill Belichick had a blowout loss. He lost 33-6 to to the 49ers. And I got to say, it's funny that even after the breakup, I still am having a hard time. I watched the Buccaneers game, and in my notes, I'm writing down Pat's you know, first down. I'm like, wait a minute. I scratch it out. It's actually Buccaneers. I still associate Tom Brady with the Patriots, even though he's winning and doing way better on another team. It's how ingrained in my mind Tom Brady and the Patriots are, this this relationship, they're, they're just ingrained in my mind together. So Brady left. He got better weapons. He's killing it. He's winning. It's great. Tom Brady, excuse me, Bill Belichick got double screwed. The Patriots head coach has weak tight ends and receivers. They have no weapons. Their quarterbacks are playing poorly. And Cam Newton had three interceptions. Jarrett Sidham came in in relief. He had another one. And Bill Belichick's defense also got nerfed. Remember, they lost... Two linebackers, Jamie Collins and Kyle Van Noy in free agency. Then Dante Hightower opted out. Patrick Chung opted out. A couple other defenders opted out. So right now, we're only seven weeks into the breakup. Seven weeks and a couple months, I guess, if you want to go that way. We're seven games 
of the NFL season into Tom Brady and Bill Belichick's breakup. But right now, Tom Brady is dominating and absolutely winning the breakup. Just a weird storyline. Just interesting to me. And I got to say, I I was surprised when the year started. I said this about week five. I've been more fascinated by the Patriots this year. I'm more inclined to watch them. I'm more interested in how they're doing. Even though Tom Brady's objectively doing better at this point, I still find myself more interested in what the Patriots are doing because they're struggling. It's not good. And I don't know how to solve their problems. Whereas Tom Brady, killing it, having a great time. Tom Brady won the breakup with Bill Belichick. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, uh, we'll talk about the Cardinals and the Seahawks. We'll talk about the Cowboys getting smacked by Washington. We'll talk about the Steelers-Titans. Later, we'll do the rest of Week 7. Justin Herbert, the Jaguars changes, Baker Mayfield. We'll end by talking about Justin Fields and Graham Mertz. Uh, and I hope that the intro to the show didn't throw you off. I uh, I don't know. I had to share my heart. I It's the first episode in a long time. My grandpa isn't listening. That's um, painful. So I love you. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope you're doing well. You know, I did two things this week to, you know, for my depression, honestly, let's be real. Uh, I went to Sonic, and Sonic's one of those places that I kind of forget exists. I don't think about them very often. They're not really in the forefront of my mind when I think about food or fast food especially. But I saw a commercial watching football for the garlic butter bacon burger at Sonic. Went out, went to there, got a grape cream slush, got a the cheeseburger, was amazing. They have pretzels, too, by the way, like soft pretzels. Would have never thought that. Girlfriend had that. Uh, and then I saw the movie Tenet. By, it's a Christopher Nolan film. It's about time travel and paradoxes. and That's not paradoxes. That's the wrong way to put it. My point is this. I saw Tenet, and that's a movie I have to see again now because it's confusing, and I had to look it up, and it's fun. That's kind of the wonder of Christopher Nolan. If you will ever get the chance to see Tenet, you should. It's awesome. And uh, if you're looking for, like, some fast food to make you happy because you're sad and need something, some comfort food for your tummy, um, <laughs> I can't believe I said that. It's true, though. The, the garlic butter bacon burger at uh, Sonic. Not even an ad. I'm just a weirdo. Uh, really, really phenomenal burger. I want to jump in. I want to talk about the Cardinals and the Seahawks. So the Cardinals-Seahawks, I had no faith that the Cardinals could win this game. I saw them lose to... The Panthers and the Lions, and I went, how is this team? And I I was very high on the Cardinals going into the year. And despite the fact that I predicted them to do so well and they're 5-2, and like you would think, oh, yeah, of course you're going to bet on the Cardinals. I actually was not confident that the Cardinals could win this game on Sunday. I'm like, this team has struggled against, you know, Panthers, the Lions. I thought they didn't play very well despite destroying the Cowboys uh, a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, how can the Cardinals go into Seattle? I guess it's at home in the desert. How can they beat Seattle uh, in a primetime moment? I was very skeptical of the Cardinals. Well, it was a wild game. It was really fun. The Cardinals won 37 to 34 in overtime. I was wrong. Don't mind being wrong. I'm mean, actually I like the Cardinals a lot. I like what they're doing. Uh, Maybe happy. Probably, uh, despite me not thinking they were going to win this game, this will help my overall prediction for them. But then I made you know in September. And Seattle was literally up the entire game until it was tied going into overtime. The first time the game, other than 0-0, was tied was going into overtime. 
And the only time Arizona ever had more points than Seattle, the only time Arizona had the lead the entire game was at the very end of overtime when they won. And it's worth noting, this is a long game. This is a 60-minute game plus another 9 minutes and 40 seconds. That's 7, what is that? 69 minutes, nice, and 40 seconds of overtime. And that entire time, one game and basically an entire overtime period, Seattle did not have an entire sack. Not once. And you can say, well, hey, Kyler Murray's incredibly elusive. And sure, you still got to find a way to... You're playing that much football, you don't get a sack. That's kind of an indictment on you as a franchise. And that's why Seattle traded for the Bengals' defensive end, Carlos Stunlap, in my opinion. They're like, we just need somebody to generate a pass rush. I think that's a good trade for everybody. The Bengals got an improvement on their, uh, their offensive line. Uh, and they traded away. They hopefully got a, a better offensive lineman that helps them. And the Seahawks got a defensive lineman, a defensive end, that they are praying Carlos Dunlap. And I would think he can. He's the leader of sacks for the Bengals. You would think he's going to help Seattle finally get some pass rush going up there in Seattle. Now, there was a lot of craziness in, the, in this game. There was that moment where DK Metcalf ran down an interception. Remember, on the goal line, Russell Wilson throws an interception. Buda Baker catches it. He's running down the sideline. And, I mean, I have never seen somebody. And it's it's really hard. It's one thing to beat somebody in a race. It's hard to catch another human being. If someone has a head start on you, you have to run so much faster than them to catch up to them and overtake them and then catch and tackle them. Like, you see this in Formula 1 all the time. It's one thing to start next to each other and win a race. But catching up to somebody is incredible. And DK Metcalf is not a Formula 1 car. He's not a scooter. He's not a skateboard. He's a human being. And I, I was so blown away watching DK Metcalf chase down Buda Baker. It's like, that's just an impressive play. A human being doing an impressive thing. And can you imagine DK Metcalf chasing you down? If I could think of like my all-time nightmares that I don't want to have happen to me. And I know I made a video. Like I made a video criticizing DK Metcalf. So maybe someday I'll have a nightmare where DK Metcalf is like, oh, yeah? Think I'm going to fail in the NFL? It's a terrifying thought. Don't want to think about that. He's much, much larger than me and clearly way faster than me. And it was really a shame because, first of all, that was that play by DK Metcalf. Really, that's the reason why the game went to overtime. So DK Metcalf runs down Buda Baker. That's a play they're going to show forever. I mean, high school coaches are going to show you got to give this kind of effort all the time. It's going to be like one of their staples. And what's even cooler is it actually led to the Cardinals not getting any points. It went from the Cardinals having a touchdown to DK Metcalf's incredible effort tackling Buda Baker, giving the Cardinals first and goal, and the Cardinals went for it on fourth and goal. They didn't get it, so the Cardinals didn't get any points out of that trip to the goal line. Thank you to DK Metcalf for holding the Cardinals. Basically playing defense better than sometimes Seattle even does. Uh, and it's a shame that Seattle didn't win the game because if they'd won the game, you'd go, we could always say, that was the key moment. Now they lost, so we can't say that was a key moment in the game. But I, it's disappointing from a storytelling perspective that Seattle didn't win because we can't now lean on that moment as the moment that turned the tide to win that game. By the way, here's another kind of tidbit about how crazy this game was. In the two minutes leading up to halftime, 17 points were scored. The Cardinals had a touchdown. Seattle answered in like three plays, got another touchdown, and then the Cardinals drove down the field and got a field goal. Bang, bang, bang. These teams were scoring at will at certain times during this game. 
And uh, I'm really the reality here is that Seattle let the Cardinals back into the game. This game should not have gone to overtime. With three minutes left, the Cardinals were kicking a field goal on fourth and 12. And Seattle got an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, making fourth and 12 first and 10. And that first and 10 led to a touchdown. And then the Cardinals stopped the, the Seahawks on offense. That set up the Cardinals ball first and 10 with 52 seconds left to go in the game. And the Cardinals put together this really great drive with great clock management. They spiked the ball, got the game-tying field goal, bam, going to overtime. And I was so, I just in that moment, I didn't care. I didn't think the Cardinals were going to win the game in overtime. And I was just like, what? That was such an impressive drive by this young quarterback. And by the way, Kyler Murray grew up in this game. There was a moment where Kyler Murray, first of all, there was a horrible play. I think it was the start of the third quarter where the Cardinals threw a screen to the right. And Bobby Wagner tears through, blows up the screen, and you have a tight end blocking two dudes. And so you have a tight end and a receiver matched up on two people, and the tight end gave a horrible effort, and whoever the screen was thrown to got destroyed. And Kyler Murray was like, that is not okay. He's on the sideline. And Kyler Murray going to the NFL, a lot of people were saying he's a lot like Marcus Mariota. He's quiet. He's timid. Could not be farther from the truth. Apparently watching on the sideline, Kyler Murray was yelling at a guy saying, we gotta go. Like, and not, not chiding, more like, let's go. We cannot, we're trying to beat Seattle. And you're not giving good enough effort on a screenplay? What are you doing? Kyler Murray, I love that moment, seeing the young quarterback kind of grow as a leader. We know, we know we've heard he's the leader. We finally saw that on Sunday against the Cardinals and against the Seattle Seahawks. And I went, Kyler Murray, that's a really cool moment. I'm going to remember the rest of the year. Now, in overtime, it was crazy. The Cardinals missed the 41-yard, what would have been the game-winning field goal. Then after that, Seattle throws a touchdown in overtime. That got called back for holding. You're like, what? So you, first of all, you thought the Cardinals were going to win. They missed a field goal. Seattle throws a touchdown. You're like, well, game over, right? Oh, holding, calls it back. Then Russell Wilson throws an interception. And Isaiah Simmons, the young rookie linebacker for the Cardinals, picked off Russell Wilson. Probably the best moment of the year for him. Best moment of his young career so far. Then the Cardinals hit the game-winning field goal. They missed from 41. They hit the field goal from 48 yards. They win the game, 20 seconds left, uh, 37-34. What a crazy game. Just a really, from a fan perspective, oh my gosh, on the edge of my seat, ton of fun, really enjoyable, and... Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful experience. I want to talk about DeAndre Hopkins. He had a big day. DeAndre Hopkins had 10 catches for 103 yards and a touchdown. He had this long, beautiful touchdown on the left sideline where he beat man coverage. And I went watching that, and there's that great video of Kyler Murray catching the ball, smiling really big, like, oh, I know this is going to work, launching the beat ball down the left sideline. And I've been waiting for that moment all year. The moment where DeAndre Hopkins and Kyler Murray finally start to click. Yeah, if you play DeAndre Hopkins in man coverage, we are going to shred you. That was another defining moment for Kyler Murray where it's like, this is the beginning of a really, really fun. And I know they've had other success together so far this year. But that moment week seven against the Seattle Seahawks was kind of the, I felt like the turning point in their their chemistry and the way they're growing together when, okay, this is going to be really, really fun the rest of the year between Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins. It's interesting how 
a, a receiver quarterback relationship ebbs and flows and it's like a relation it's like any relationship the more you get to know each other and get to trust each other and the more you succeed together going through anything together and having success together bonds you together and you trust each other more that was somewhat of a defining moment so far in the Kyler Murray DeAndre Hopkins relationship now people also need to be aware of the Cardinals tight end Dan Arnold he's not much of a blocker but he's a really good route runner nobody talks about him Dan Arnold he is really really good at beating linebackers and matchups nobody talks about him again not a blocking tight end He's definitely a receiving tight end, kind of almost like Larry Fitzgerald's become a receiving tight end in the Cardinals offense anyway. Dan Arnold does a similar thing. He beats linebackers and man-to-man coverage consistently. And uh, Dan Arnold, nobody's talking about him. Really interesting tight end. And uh, the broadcast noted this. I think it's worth pointing out as well. They had a whole really cool segment called talking about, I think it was called the the Desert Do-Over. That's what it was called. And pointing out how it's really absurd to go from you draft a quarterback, Josh Rosen, you hire a head coach, Steve Wilkes, and then after one year, they fire Steve Wilkes and they got rid of Josh Rosen. That never happens. You trade up to get a quarterback in the top 10, and then you don't keep him after one year, and you fire the coach you just hired with, again, you're still paying the guy. He's got dead money on the contract. And I th- the broadcast pointed this out. I wanted to piggyback on this. They pointed out how, and I guess these are my words, not theirs, really, but it's a patient owner. It's an owner who's understanding of the bigger scheme here saying, yeah, I know that's crazy. I know we just hired this guy. I know we just drafted this guy. But to say, instead of firing the general manager who said, we can do better, the owner said, I trust you guys. Here, Use my money. Let's do the right thing. And by having an owner who is patient and trusting – and having a general manager who is willing to kind of be crazy, fire the coach, basically fire the quarterback, Josh Rose, and drafting Kyler Murray, hiring Cliff Kingsbury, a guy, Cliff Kingsbury, who was not very successful at Texas Tech. It was gutsy all around. And it seems like those two moves are paying off tremendously for the Arizona Cardinals. They're 5-2. and two. They're building something very, very special. I'm all in. I believe in the Cardinals. And, uh, man, it's just cool how you you have to take risks to get ahead in life. But there are so many moments where you're at an inflection point. You're scared. It feels crazy. Like, you just hired this guy. You just drafted Josh Rosen. What do you mean you're going to give up on them to go get better? But you cannot be afraid to take the risk of saying no to good and going off to get great. You have to risk it sometimes to get great. But great is so much better than just having okay or good. You know what I mean? I, I just I really I find with the Cardinals, when you look at it that way, you go, the Cardinals took a tremendous risk. They weren't afraid. They went for it. And it is paying off big time for the Arizona Cardinals. How about the Cowboys against Washington? I felt very strongly going into this game that Washington would win this game. I said that, Hey, the Cowboys are more talented, but Washington is better coached. And I was 100% right. Washington beat Dallas 25-3. to It was embarrassing. It wasn't close. It wasn't competitive. And the Dallas Cowboys mess just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. The more I talk about them, the more I dive into what they're doing. It's just not good at all. 
Andy Dalton didn't look good. He didn't throw the ball very well downfield. He didn't throw the ball very much downfield at all. Actually, he just was dinking and dunking, and that was even bad. You know, there was an interception where Andy Dalton threw the ball to Ezekiel Elliott. It literally popped off Ezekiel Elliott's hands up in the air, got picked off. Then Andy Dalton got hurt. He got nailed helmet to helmet by John Bostick. And it was really shocking that nobody got in John Bostick's face. Usually when a quarterback gets nailed like that, the offensive line goes, Hey, that's my guy. What are you doing? They protect their quarterback. And I got to say, I, I know that I've seen a lot of, I've had articles sent to me and I've had people tell me stuff and send me messages. Can you believe the Cowboys wouldn't defend their quarterback? And there's a lot of layers here. First of all, I think Dak Prescott's their quarterback. So that's, they're already not as emotionally connected. Number two, I actually was watching the game, and my immediate thought wasn't, why aren't they fighting for Dak, for for Andy Dalton? My immediate thought was, Andy Dalton's hurt. And I actually think you people are really being very critical of the Cowboys for their lacking leadership, and they're not fighting hard. And I guess you could watch Andy Dalton get leveled and see nobody defending him, see that as the Cowboys being weak. I actually saw that and went, I think they're concerned. Andy Dalton looks hurt. I, and I, I almost wonder if, like, let John Bostic be himself, because the offensive lineman didn't just run into John Bostic's face. The offensive lineman, they ran to check on Andy Dalton. So I, I don't know that it's entirely, I think it's a little bit overblown how the Cowboys aren't standing up for the quarterback or they're not fighting or don't care. But it did seem like, I mean, I guess forget that moment, 25-3, to 3, you can interpret that as the Cowboys have no fight pretty easily anyway, so... I don't know. I, I, I do understand the concern that you got to stand up for your teammate. Now, Ben DiNucci finished the game for the Cowboys. He's now probably going to be the starting quarterback for the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football April the Eagles this week. And uh, Andy Dalton is in concussion protocol. Ben DiNucci is a guy who played, he played at Pitt, University of Pittsburgh. He actually played with Max Brown. And then he transferred to James Madison for the final two years of his career. Had a really good time. One did a lot, did a really good stuff actually. James Madison was not terrible in college. He can run a little bit. He's got a solid arm. Um, I'm interested. I'm not. I'm very doubted. I'm very doubtful that Ben DiNucci is going to do very good. But I, it, how cool would that be if Ben DiNucci came out and was like suddenly the answer to the Cowboys' prayers? Like he was phenomenal. I don't see that happening. That'd be crazy if it did. But what if it did? I can't, what if it did? What if Ben DiNucci on Sunday Night Football? Racks up like 400 yards passing, four touchdowns, even th- I'll take three touchdowns, and like looks remotely good. Oh, what a wild year we'd be in for there if Ben DiNucci turned out to be a good quarterback for the Cowboys. Now, I love, I love, love, love what the Washington football team is doing. Besides their name, besides their terrible ownership, besides a horrible stadium, Ron Rivera is doing really good stuff in Washington. I am all in on Ron Rivera. I love the guy fighting cancer. Like he, he just beat cancer, by the way, at his final treatment the other day, winning football games as a head coach. I believe in Ron Rivera. Ron Rivera appears to believe heavily in Kyle Allen. Kyle Allen is his quarterback. Kyle Allen had two touchdowns on Sunday, played a good, clean game, had good throws, completed all the easy ones downfield. He also completed some big throws downfield. Had zero turnovers. Kyle Allen, that's the best game I've seen Kyle Allen play all year. I get it's against the Cowboys. They're terrible. But I I was excited about Kyle Allen. I really buy into Ron Rivera. And then weird thought is I I really like the Washington football team tight end, Logan Thomas, a former quarterback. 
believe it, West uh, University of Virginia, UVA. He is awesome. Maybe it's Virginia. I think it's Virginia Tech, actually. I forget. I apologize. Logan Thomas, a former quarterback, playing very well at tight end, had another a big catch where he snagged the ball away from a Cowboys defender on Sunday. And uh, good for Washington, man. A lot of people hate seeing the Cowboys uh, do anything well, so a lot of people were happy the Cowboys got killed. I didn't care about that. I'm not a Cowboys hater. I, I they're, they're just another football team. Um, and I, honestly, I, I look at what the Cowboys are doing. I don't have an answer to solve their problems. Like, I, I think they might have hired the wrong coach. I, Dak Prescott, you hope he comes back. I, I almost feel, I, I just feel concerned for Dallas. I don't hate them. I feel almost bad for them. It's not going well for the Dallas Cowboys. And um, I very much buy into what the Washington football team is doing. Washington looks, uh, looks awesome. I love Ron Rivera. Kyle Allen, I'm, I'm more lukewarm on, but I like what he's doing so far. He's definitely the best quarterback they have. And uh, good for Washington, man. The good win on Sunday. They beat the Cowboys 25-3. to And, uh, I look, I like seeing Washington play well. I thought they would. And Washington is a very well-coached football team. How about the Steelers and the Titans? I had no idea what was going to happen in this game. I was hoping for a really good game. The Steelers did win 27-24. to but Tennessee deserves a lot of credit here. The Titans, I mean, the game came down to a last-second field goal. Anytime It came down to the final play. And you can't say, well, the Steelers dominated and the Titans were terrible. They lost. No, the Titans lost by three points, and they had a chance to tie the game with a field goal. They missed the, I believe, 46-yard field goal wide right. I, I, I just, I'm impressed. I really like it. I thought the Titans... I, to me, the star was Ryan Tannehill. He really continues to impress me. Uh, now, the Steelers were up 24-7 to at halftime. The Titans had to fight back to get into the game. And the Steelers really won this game using all three phases where early on they made a ton of great plays on offense. Then they had a huge punt return that set up a touchdown. The Steelers' defense held the Titans to 82 yards rushing total. Derrick Henry had 20 carries for only 75 yards. That's a big deal. That's a incredibly good Titans running game that got stuffed by Pittsburgh. And the Steelers' offense have so many weapons that I... I mean, Chase Claypool, Juju Smith-Schuster, Deontay Johnson, Evan Ingram... Uh, no, excuse me, Eric Ebron. Evan Ingram's in uh, New York. Eric Ebron, a really good tight end who had a, a couple of good catches on Sunday. They have two good running backs, Benny Snell and James Conner. Benny Snell is a... Looks like he completely transformed his ability to play running back. And on the first two drives, the Steelers had not one, not two, not even five. The Steelers had seven third-down conversions, third and one, third and three, but then some long ones, like third and 14, third and 11, third and 12. The Steelers were dealing early on in this game, and it's impressive stuff. Again, I liked what I saw from Ryan Tannehill, the Titans quarterback. Um, the Titans were within a—they missed a game-tying field goal. I, I thought valiant effort by the Titans— my my viewpoint on the Tennessee Titans did not diminish at all. They're a very good football team. The Steelers are a very good football team. They play again tomorrow. If they played again tomorrow, you never know. The Titans could win that game. You know, they played 10 times. I think they split the series 50-50. They're a very evenly matched football team. I think they're both playoff teams. So the Steelers-Titans, uh, great game. I hope they rematch again. I would love that. And credit goes to both franchises. They played very well. 
And uh, I really wouldn't mind seeing them rematch down the road in the NFL playoffs. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll do more NFL Week 7. We'll talk about Gardner Minshew. We'll talk about Justin Herbert. We'll talk about Baker Mayfield. Ooh, Baker Mayfield. Probably at his best game ever as a Cleveland Brown. The Bears and the Rams people were really, really hard on that game. And then later, we'll talk about the college quarterbacks. Graham Mertz, there's some... There's some new news. You've probably heard it, but there's some new news relating to Graham Mertz and then Justin Fields. Week one, baby. Oh, man. We'll talk about that. Really interesting stuff. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right. We are back. I hope you're doing well. I want to jump in. Let's talk about the Jaguars and the Chargers. Going into this game, I expected Justin Herbert to spread the Jaguars. I really did. Um, I was excited to watch this. I believed that when you compared Gardner Minshew next to Justin Herbert, unfortunately, it was going to make Gardner Minshew look bad. And to some degree, that's exactly what happened on Sunday. The Chargers won 39-29. And I love Gardner Minshew. I try to give him the benefit of the doubt all the time. We did learn that he had a, apparently he's had a fractured thumb on his throwing hand ever since week three which is a big deal. That's that's hard to throw a football with a fractured thumb. But even in spite of that, Gardner Minshew lacks arm talent, and he always has. I love the guy. I've been a big advocate of Gardner Minshew, and it's, it's possible that everything we've seen so far this year has been really influenced by the injury. So I want to give that some... I want to say that up front. But when you compare... Regardless of the injury, when you compare Justin Herbert side-by-side to Gardner Minshew, the result is a a big ouch for Gardner Minshew because Justin Herbert has all the physical tools that Gardner Minshew lacks. Justin can run. He's got a cannon. He can make throws that, unfortunately, like the final throw he had down the right sideline, the final touchdown he had down the right sideline, is just a ball that you'll never see from Gardner Minshew, a beautiful long, vertical throw down the right sideline, perfectly in stride with incredible force behind it. That's just not a throw that Gardner Minshew is capable of making literally physically at all. Justin Herbert had four touchdowns, three passing, one rushing. And he's still very raw. He's missing some throws that I I honestly want to see him make. Uh, I want to see him continue to grow. But Justin's already playing at a high level. He's playing very, very well. And... The ceiling is incredibly high for Justin Herbert. I believe in him. He's growing. Every week I watch him, I go, that's another. He's just, there's lessons. You know, Joe Burrow is learning lessons every week. Gardner Minshew, there are some hard lessons you got to learn every single week. Gardner Minshew, I say Gardner Minshew, I meant Justin Herbert. A rookie quarterback goes through stuff where you go, oh, you make a mistake, you learn from it, you never do it again. That's just how playing quarterback works, especially when you're a rookie doing stuff for the first time in a new offense. And... I really thought that the Jaguars' lack of talent showed against the L.A. Chargers. Gardner Minshew was constantly under pressure. It was a big problem for them. And this is sad, but it's also true. Think about this. Let's let you ponder it because it's kind of it's disappointing when you say it out loud. The best player on the Jaguars' roster right now is an undrafted rookie free agent running back, James Robinson. Undrafted, rookie, free agent, nobody expected him. 
He's the best, at least on offense. Maybe I'll be clear. On offense, he's the Jaguars' best player. And the Jags could not move the ball well early in the game. Their first four drives, they had four three and outs. That's a three-play drive, and then you punt. Couldn't get a first down. And the Jaguars did not get a first down until the second quarter of this game. And because of Gardner Minshew's low ceiling, I would replace him. I, I, I don't know that I would, but I would support it if the Jaguars were like, you know what, we're going to draft Justin Fields. Or if we can get Trevor Lawrence, we're going to draft Trevor Lawrence. Of course I would support that. It makes total sense. I, I want to be clear there. If you can get a guy who's got better arm talent than Gardner Minshew on a rookie contract, if you can get Justin Fields in Jacksonville, oh my gosh, yeah, pull the trigger on that, especially what we saw week one from Justin Fields. Because I, I, I think Gardner lacks the arm talent to carry a team long term. He's had some moments where against the Broncos last year, he elevated his team, he rallied them, they came back, they won. Like Gardner Minshew is capable of that, and he's a great leader. He controls what he can control. Gardner had a long touchdown on the left sideline where to DJ Chark, he left maybe DJ Chark or Keenan Cole, I forget. But he left the ball, he threw the ball up in the air, high in the air, so it could drop down to the receiver. That's what you're supposed to do. Everything Gardner can control, he does very well. Unfortunately, there are some physical limitations that he simply cannot control. He's just doesn't have the strongest arm. And it's sad because I think if the Jaguars replace Gardner Minshew. It's going to feel like a missed opportunity where he's on a cheap contract. He's very quality. And if you build a good team around Gardner Minshew, that dog will hunt. You can win a lot with Gardner Minshew if you've got a good team. And really, the truth is that Gardner went to the wrong franchise. If Gardner was the quarterback last year of the Pittsburgh Steelers on that football team when Big Ben had gotten hurt, oh my gosh, it would have been... Night and day. I mean, they would have made the playoffs probably because Gardner's good enough where he is disciplined. He makes good decisions. My big criticism of Baker Mayfield, the criticism you have of most quarterbacks is your decision-making is a problem. You're missing throws. You're making emotional decisions. Gardner doesn't have those problems. Gardner's problems are all physical, and that's why it's really frustrating to go, man, if he had a good team. I mean, if Gardner Minshew had been the Jaguars quarterback in their playoff run in 2017, they would have gotten to the Super Bowl. They lost in the AFC Championship game because their quarterback was stinking Blake Bortles. Ugh. And so I, because of the injury, because of Gardner's struggles anyway, the Jaguars head coach Doug Marone has come out and said that moving forward, the plan is to take things outside the box. I don't know what that means. I have a theory, though. My prediction is that what that means is that they're going to run a wildcat offense. My guess would be LaVisca Chenault, the running, the receiver from Colorado, who is a guy who is incredible with the ball in his hands. They're going to put LaVisca Chenault in the shotgun. James Robinson next to him as running back. We're in a wildcat formation, and um, I, I think that might be their best offensive set. they got a bye week to figure it out. they got a whole week off to draw it up on the board and rep it a couple times. And that's my prediction for what the new outside-the-box change for the Jaguars is going to be, is a... Wildcat package with the Visca Chenault running the quarterback, the Wildcat quarterback position with James Robinson next to him. That's what I think they're going to do. That's what I would do, honestly, if I was trying to come up with some unique, different offense. I'd run a lot of what the Jag, the, the Baltimore Ravens do 
running the ball with. I mean, imagine you run the stuff you run with Lamar Jackson with Lavishka Chenault instead. That's a really effective package, I would think. Now, by the way, another thing you need to hear is that the Chargers tight end, Donald Parham, had a a touchdown in this game. He is a I watched him play in the XFL for the the Dallas, was it Mavericks? Was that what they were called? Dallas Renegades. That's what they're the Renegades? It's funny how like that was only in February, and I already forgot what the team names for the XFL was. Was the Dallas Renegades? Anyway, Donald Parham's this great tight end. There are three tight ends in the NFL that are underappreciated and underrated. You should hear about number one is Donald Parham, the Chargers tight end. He's six foot eight. He had a touchdown on Sunday against the Jaguars. The dude is up and coming. He might be another year away. He's really raw. Donald Parham, though, is a name you should hear. He's a really good up-and-coming tight end. Another guy is the Browns tight end, Harrison Bryant. He was literally the best tight end in college football last year, uh, playing at Florida Atlantic. He, At least according to the award he won for being the best tight end. So you can make the judge, Cole Komet. There's some other tight ends that are really good in college football. I'm not trying to make that statement. My point is, don't overlook Harrison Bryant. He's a really good tight end for the Cleveland Browns. And then Dan Arnold is a guy with the Cardinals, another guy. I think he played like Division II college football. Came out of nowhere. He is consistently beating linebackers. Dan Arnold is not going to block. He's not going to – he can try. He's not going to blow you away blocking. But Dan Arnold is a guy – when I watch the Cardinals, he consistently beats linebackers in one-on-one matchups. And the three tight ends you'd never heard of you need to know about, Donald Parham, Harrison Bryant, and Dan Arnold. A couple of young guys who are studs. For their respective teams. All right. How about the Browns and the Bengals? Going into this game, I said that Baker Mayfield needed to play well. He did. The Browns won this game 37 to 34. It was such a good game. Oh my goodness. I loved it. I hope that the Browns and Bengals rivalry gives us. Games like this for years to come where Baker Mayfield and Joe Burrow are trading blows back and forth. Oh my gosh, I thought the Bengals scored the game-winning touchdown. Then the Browns drove down the field. Rashard Higgins had this crazy catch set up first and goal. Oh my, wonderful, entertaining, great football. And I, I don't know, man. The Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield had five touchdowns. 22 for 28 passing, had a game-winning touchdown, and you know he had this one interception at the very beginning of the game, uh, to, thrown to Odell Beckham Jr. I don't know. I thought this game was kind of a cool moment for Baker Mayfield where, I mean, literally it's the best game of Baker's career in the NFL. He had, at one point, he had 18 straight completions. That's ridiculous. And I... People that I know in Cleveland were sending me a ton of messages this week saying, Baker Mayfield, yeah, he's amazing. And I, I understand the emotion there. I'm excited for you guys. Um, but I also don't want to overreact. I mean, I'll be honest, Baker needs to play like this every single week. Maybe not 18 completions in a row. Like, I get that's that's what I'm saying here. But my point is that, yeah, be happy for Baker. Great. But the expectation for Baker needs to be he's got to have a really good, really efficient game where he's accurate and plays well every single week. You, we, we shouldn't be celebrating too much because 
this should become commonplace for Baker Mayfield. This should not be, whoa, what exciting one-off thing. And I'm not saying the dude needs to have five touchdowns and 18 completions in a row every single week. But what I'm saying is 22 for 28, that's actually maybe what he should be every week. And he does need to be very efficient. He does need to be smart with the football. And he still needs to eliminate that interception. I mean, there are things that Baker needs to clean up and do better. And this should be the expectation for Baker Mayfield. That's my point here. Hold him to a little bit of a higher standard before you go, Woo! One good win! Oh, yeah! No, no, no. Let's hold him to that standard every single week. Now, Browns receiver Odell Beckham Jr. tore his ACL. He's out for the year. Uh, I feel bad for the guy. It's not fun. It's terrible. Now, a lot of people are telling me, getting, you know, a lot of, I get a lot of messages, and they're saying, hey, Baker might be better without Odell Beckham Jr. And I guess my tone of voice probably made it sound like I'm about to tear those people a new one. Um, I, there might be something to that, though. There might be something to the theory that Baker might be better without OBJ. Now, a good friend of mine, Brett Coleman, I'm sure would fillet me for saying that. He would be like, well, you're always better with a great receiver. And yeah, like on uh, in Madden, you're always better with Odell Beckham Jr. But I actually want, I, I've wondered this for a while. Is dealing with OBJ complicating things for Baker Mayfield when he drops back? Where you have a guy whose ego you're trying to feed, not to mention you're forcing some throws where... You're like, we know he should win one-on-one matchups, but you're overthinking it. And I, the chemistry with Baker and OBJ has not impressed me all year. And so I guess the the final point I'm going to make about Baker Mayfield, I don't want to make a, I don't want to, it's not worth talking about much more. It's, I think, somewhat of a conspiracy theory that Baker might be better without OBJ. But time will tell. And as time goes on, we're going to learn whether or not Baker is better without Odell Beckham Jr., but I'm also not going to rule it out. It's possible that having OBJ in there does change the decision-making paradigm for Baker Mayfield, and maybe he will be better without him. It's possible. Now, rookie tight end Harrison Bryant had what I felt like was a breakout game on Sunday. Four catches, 56 yards, two touchdowns. So Austin Hooper, the regular starting tight end, was out hurt. And the Browns have such good tight ends. I mean, it really reminds me of the Patriots a couple of years ago when they had a guy, Rob Gronkowski, and a guy who I believe killed somebody on a Netflix documentary uh, at tight end. And um, I I don't know, man. Not that the personalities are the same, but having two really good tight ends, actually three if you think about it, when Austin Hooper is healthy, the Browns have three tight ends who can regularly beat linebackers downfield. I think, so if Odell Beckham Jr. is hurt, I actually think tight ends are more valuable for that offense anyway. Uh, they, they help in the running game. They help with numbers in the box. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, play action. You find your tight ends. I think their offense is suited for tight ends. There's a reason they got Austin Hooper. And uh, I, I just think that OBJ may be overstated. I think the loss, if they lost two of their tight ends, that'd be a really bigger problem with the Browns and losing Odell Beckham Jr. Odell Beckham Jr. is kind of a luxury. So I keep your eye on that. The, the, the tight end situation is what's interesting to me in Cleveland. Now, by the way, Kareem Hunt was such a steal. 
getting Kareem Hunt on the Browns. The dude had three catches, 26 yards, and a touchdown. Also had 18 carries for 76 yards. Um, Kareem Hunt is such an asset to the Browns' offense. They're so lucky to have him, and uh, it's kind of crazy. They got him under a interesting circumstance, and uh, they're lucky to have him. Now, the Browns' defensive end, Miles Garrett, is a guy that I <sighs> constantly fascinates me because I don't understand why NFL teams have not caught on yet to the fact that you simply cannot leave Miles Garrett in a one-on-one situation. It's just not going to happen. I watched the Bears game. The Rams are constantly double-teaming Khalil Mack. I watched the – in that same game, Aaron Donald – is constantly being double teamed because people have understand, hey, you can't leave Khalil Mack or Aaron Donald in a one-on-one situation. For whatever reason, the NFL is stupid and can't figure out, hey, uh, Miles Garrett's going to win one-on-one matchups if you leave him in a one-on-one matchup, particularly sometimes with a backup left tackle. Are you kidding me, Bengals? Miles Garrett had two sacks and a forced fumble on Sunday, and I just sit there going, are you going to at least try to make it harder on the guy? Why is he in so many one-on-one matchups? I don't understand. I don't get it. I I also want to give credit to the Browns. Steve Wilkes had a really good blitz at one point where I went, I don't know how you defend that. Uh, you know, Joe Burrow was kind of dead to rights, and it was just a delayed blitz where there's nothing you can do. Denzel Ward had a good play where he knocked the ball away in the end zone. Now, the Browns did drop an interception. I think I it would it would infuriate a lot of people if I said that. I think the Browns off defense is making progress. People are like the Browns defense gave up 34 points on Sunday. Are you kidding me? But I will say there were a couple plays I saw from the Browns where I went, that's a good blitz, or that's a good play by a corner, or a good tackle, or good recognition. I mean, the, it's not all bad by the Browns defense. They're actually doing a couple things that I go, that's really good. Like Joe Burrow is just also a really, really shockingly good rookie quarterback. Now I want to talk about Baker, uh, Joe Burrow because – and to say Baker Mayfield, I meant Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow is incredible. I am so excited about the career of Joe Burrow. He did enough to win this game. He was he had three touchdowns. He had 406 yards passing, had an interception. I think it was one of those moments where, it's again, it's a learning moment for Joe Burrow where on the goal line you got to put more ball, more air up and under the ball, throw it up in the air, let your tight end or receiver, whoever it was in the end zone, run under it. He tried to throw it more on a line, got tipped in the air, got intercepted. Learning moment for Joe Burrow. Uh, I think Joe Burrow works very well with the head coach, Zach Taylor, in Cincinnati. I have been very skeptical of Zach Taylor. So far, I actually think that, at least on the offensive side of the ball, Zach Taylor is a really good fit with Joe Burrow. And then A.J. Green and Joe Burrow are finally developing chemistry. And it's kind of sad. The margin for error for Joe Burrow is so low. He cannot afford to make any single bad play or else he's going to lose a football game. It's very, very... You look at guys like like Justin Herbert has a way better roster around him than Joe Burrow does. And I think it's actually, at least for the development of Joe Burrow, it's good. He's growing up fast. He's learning hard lessons that the margin for error for Joe Burrow is really harsh and it's really small. But in the long run, it's going to make him a better quarterback. And he's so attentive to detail. Now, the thing I was going to say that really excites me, Joe Burrow and A.J. Green are finally developing chemistry. They had a couple back shoulder fades against the Browns. Uh, A.J. moved very well on Sunday. I think this is the first time I've watched A.J. Green. Did I say Brown? This is the first time I've watched A.J. Green 
play all year where I went, okay, wow, A.J. Green looks healthy. He's moving well. He had good chemistry with Joe Burrow. I am very, very excited for the future of the Cincinnati Bengals. I like what they're doing. I like what they're building. And I see good things ahead in Cincinnati. How about the Saints and the Panthers? I picked the Saints to win this game. I was curious whether or not the Panthers could make it interesting. Now, the Saints won 27-24. The Panthers did make it interesting. Uh, but also, on a infuriating moment here, the Panthers' game plan on defense drove me nuts. I do not understand why they insisted so much on playing zone defense against Drew Brees. Drew Brees ate them alive. It, it made no sense to me. The longest pass all day Drew Brees threw was 17 yards. He just wasn't throwing the ball vertically downfield at all because he didn't have to. They never once forced him to throw the ball vertically. By the way, with COVID and injuries, the Saints are playing with a bunch of backup receivers. I am not kidding when I say that Drew Brees was literally throwing to undrafted free agent rookie receivers. What? What? And I so, oh, I so badly wanted Carolina to stack the box, load the box, play the run, play man coverage outside, make Drew Brees beat you by throwing the ball vertically, make him beat you over the top. And instead, I felt like they just handed him the game. They kept saying, we're going to play really soft coverage. We'll just let Drew Brees pick us apart, find easy completions underneath. I did not understand what the philosophy was. And maybe that is their philosophy, is we're just going to play zone coverage and learn how to do it right. But it, it didn't work against Drew Brees. It rarely works against Drew Brees. And I thought that in this game in particular, you had a unique opportunity where Drew Brees had very limited options at receiver. And you could have said, we're playing man coverage, making Drew Brees do what he's not, his worst at. And I, I was very disappointed we didn't get to see that this week from the Panthers' defense. Now, the Panthers' quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater, was awesome. Uh, 23 for 28 passing, 254 yards, two touchdowns. I really thought, honestly, only—I mean, Teddy had this play where he extended a play, running left, flipped his hips, threw the ball back over the middle, great ball. Um, really, Teddy only had one bad play the entire game. It was very costly, probably cost them— at least a chance at overtime, where on third and 11, right at the end of the very end of the game, Teddy Bridgewater took a sack. They lost eight yards, making the field goal, uh, making the game-tying field goal attempt go from 50-something. What's, what's 65 minus eight? So a 57-yard field goal became a 65-yard field goal. The Panthers' 65-yard field goal was dead center down the middle, and about a foot short. I mean, literally, if they are, if that's a 60-yard field goal or a 62-yard field goal, even a 64-yard field goal is probably good. That sack, at the very minimum, cost the Panthers an opportunity at overtime with the Saints. And it felt like the Saints blew this game. I, I, I still feel good about their future, but I thought that the sack was costly and the zone defense all game. I mean, there were like a few select moments where they played man coverage, but I just was begging Carolina, play zone coverage. Or play man coverage. Take away Alvin Kamara, load the box, make Drew Brees beat you over the top. They never did it. And um, I just, I don't know, man. I, I was infuriated watching the Panthers play this weekend. Now, there was a cool moment. If you remember, 
Teddy Bridgewater, the Panthers quarterback, played in New Orleans last year. He was actually Drew Brees' backup. Got a lot of playing time, and Drew Brees got hurt. There was a cool moment where Teddy Bridgewater, running out of bounds, gets to the sideline, and just didn't quite stop. He ran a couple more feet, sat down next to Drew Brees, plopped down Drew Brees on his right, Taysom Hill on his left. I love that moment. I thought it was super cool uh, where I just, it's like, oh, that's just fun, nerdy football stuff. Like, oh, a guy sitting down with his old teammates like old times, and they were, ha- I mean, Drew Brees was smiling all big, gave him a pat on the back. It was like the very end of the game of their final two-minute drive. I just really like that. First of all, it shows how comfortable and relaxed Teddy Bridgewater is. Two, if you know the history, it's just also really fun. So I, one of my favorite moments of the game. I thought that was very, very cool. Now, the Lions and the Falcons. What a weird game. I, I got this one wrong. Uh, for some idiotic reason, I picked the Falcons to win this game. The Lions won 23-22. They had a last-second touchdown that won the game. Literally, I am not exaggerating. The very last second they scored, uh, they won the game. Uh, it was funny to watch, actually. Funny, maybe fun. I mean, really, certainly a very entertaining game. Well, number one, I couldn't believe the Falcons did not target the Lions rookie cornerback, Jeff Okuda, more often. I mean, they should have attacked him and attacked him and attacked him. They didn't. For some reason, they practiced restraint. I didn't understand. I thought guys were open. I thought he was lost a couple times in coverage. It's like the, the game plan for the Falcons didn't understand. We should attack Jeff Okuda a ton. They didn't. I never understood that. I also got to say the Lions did get handed a touchdown early on. If we're just being objective and fair here, there was a play where Matthew Stafford stepped up in the pocket uh, and then ran outside of the pocket, got sacked. It was a great play, great tackle. And they called unnecessary roughness or roughing the passer. It made no sense to me. Um, it was a 100% clean hit. And it was just kind of, it was BS, honestly. I, I thought that the Lions were gifted a touchdown there. There's this terrible, terrible call early in the game. Now, this game had a wild ending, a, a supremely Atlanta Falcons ending where, of course, they had a plan, it went horribly, and they fell apart. So the Falcons had the ball, losing by two points. They were down 16-14. to 14. That's a two-point lead for the Lions. Falcons have the ball on the 10-yard line going in, minute 12 left. All the Falcons have to do, Lions have no timeouts. You snap the ball, you give it to your running back, he runs like to the middle of the field, lays down. Everything's great. You're only snapping the ball to try to run out the clock a little bit. You're going to run out the clock. You're going to take a timeout, and then you're going to kick the game-winning field goal with three seconds left in the game. That's perfect scenario. That's exactly what should happen. Well, for whatever reason, the Falcons falconed it, and Todd Gurley takes the, the, the ball, runs up the middle, lowers his shoulder, tries to power through a guy, the Lions kind of baited him in it. They lower their shoulder. They initiate contact. They let off. Todd Gurley, because he's stupid, and I'm, I, 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 it's indefensible, his forward momentum carries him into the end zone. And <laughs> the Falcons now give the ball back to the Lions. They did get the two-point conversion. But they were trying not to score and run up the clock. And instead, the Falcons had a six-point lead and gave the ball back to the Lions. The Lions got the ball with a minute, four seconds left. The Lions drove all the way down the field. They won the game. Literally, it was second down on the 11-yard line with two seconds left. And the Lions, have I been saying Falcons? The Lions get the ball, two yard, 11-yard uh, line, second down, two seconds left. Matthew Stafford steps up in the pocket, 
you know, escapes left a little bit, touchdown to the young tight end, bam. Lions win 23 to 22. And uh I don't know if it's more sad that Jeff, you know, that Todd Gurley really screwed up and didn't understand how to just literally I mean, they should have taken a knee, I guess, at this point. I don't know why. It's just it's baffling to me that Todd Gurley ran all the way 10 yards into the end zone. Like, bro, what are you doing? And then number two, okay, so what? You give up a t- you give up the you you score the touchdown, you're up six points. You can't stop Matt Ryan. I think that also is a problem, too, is that the self-fulfilling prophecy, they go, oh, crap, we screwed up on offense. Now we're going to lose, and they did. So the Falcons Falcon did once again. Not good by them. Just awful, awful football, and very, very disappointing. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll talk about the Bears-Rams. We'll talk about the Buffalo Bills, their tune-up game against the Jets, if it you can call it that. It was I mean, way worse than I would have thought. Uh, the Chiefs and Broncos, we'll talk about the Packers and the Texans. And then at the very end of the show, we'll talk about Graham Mertz and the week one performance of Justin Fields. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. I hope you're doing well. Let's dive in. Let's talk about the Bears and the Rams. I'll be honest, I was not sure what to make of this game going in. Now, in the end, the Rams won 24 to 10. The Rams beat the Bears. And both teams today are now 5 and 2. But since this game ended, there's been a lot of hyperbole about the the Bears especially. The Bears are in crisis. The Bears couldn't move the ball at all. The Bears are terrible. And I, I just didn't see it. I got a lot of articles sent to me. And I, went, I, I don't agree with anything I'm reading about this game. It's kind of... Because I, I, I read about the game. Then I watched the game and I said, it just doesn't... It doesn't compute with me. Uh, Nick Foles had two interceptions. I thought that some of that was just the fact that He's trying to make something happen, especially the second interception at the end of the game. The Bears really struggled with pass protection. I think we're going to learn a lot from the Bears. I'm not ready to say the Bears are terrible or Nick Foles doesn't work or all this this crazy statements a lot of people are making. Crazy is not the right word. People are making a lot of really bold predictions about the Bears and how bad they are. And I'm just not ready to say that they're a horrible team yet. Uh, they play the, the Saints then the Titans, then the Vikings, and then the Green Bay Packers. Those are the next four games for the Chicago Bears. And after those four games, we'll have a better read on how good they are. Then we can make broad, strong, general statements about the Bears. Uh, I, I just, I, I heard, you know, people are like, their offense is inept and terrible, and they didn't move the ball. And it's just not true. They did move the ball. They did get first downs. Nick Foles at times, had some good throws. Uh, and I, I just, yeah, the Bears are struggling with pass protection, sure. But I, I think people were a little bit harsh on the Bears in this game and, what you know, them losing. They're 5-2. and two. We're going to learn a lot about them against the Saints and the Titans and the Vikings and the Packers. And if they go, you know, they, they might go 1-3. and three. They might only beat the Vikings. And in that case, they're a bad football team. But if they have a winning record or do well in those next four games, I, I don't know how you... You doubt what the Bears are doing up there in Chicago. Now, the Bills and the Jets. I said this game was going to be a tune-up game for the Buffalo Bills, an opportunity for them to clean things up and solve some of their problems. And unfortunately, they didn't. The Bills only won 18-12. Buffalo won the game and only had 
six field goals. That's the only. That's a lot of points. That's a lot of time scoring. But there's also a lot of opportunities where you didn't finish a drive. And in fact, the Bills had eight field goal attempts, meaning they just could not finish a drive at all. And I don't understand why the Bills are refusing to run the ball more. It, it makes no sense to me. Now, Sam Darnold and Denzel Mims were back. Sam Darnold had a really bad interception, I believe, in the first half of the game on a corner ball. Nowhere near anybody. It's an impulsive, bad throw. Uh, but the Jets did lead the game 10 to nothing at one point. And I think the key takeaway here is that the Bills were very unconvincing against the Jets. The, the Bills... They play the, uh, the Patriots next week, and I, I have very little confidence in Buffalo. Now, good thing for them is the Patriots also look terrible. But the Bills, I, I've really been waiting for them to step it up. And again, this was a very unconvincing win for the Buffalo Bills on Sunday over the New York Jets. How about the Chiefs and Broncos? This was a, I thought a fun snowy game at the very minimum. We got to see snow in the NFL. Uh, week 7, that's a little bit early in Denver to see snow, and I... Awesome. Loved it. Really, really cool. Now, going in, my only real curiosity here was whether or not Denver could keep it close, you know, by halftime. Denver could not. At halftime, Kansas City led the game 24 to 9. Drew Locke had a pick six. And by the end of the game, the Chiefs were up by so much that Chad Henney was playing quarterback for the Chiefs. Chad Henney actually had a touchdown running for Kansas City. Kansas City won the game 43 to 16. Not a lot to be said here. This wasn't a very interesting, a very good game other than the snow. And uh, I thought Drew Locke looked young at times, had some, had a bad interception, had another one. I think a second one wasn't his fault, got tipped up you know, off of KJ Hamler's hands. But I just, um, I mean, there's not much more to say about this game. The Chiefs dominated. They won easily. And uh, the Chiefs play the Jets next week. Like, I don't, I mean, the Chiefs are going to have a hard time staying motivated if they keep playing bad teams like this that aren't ready to go. And uh, Casey's really good. Denver got dominated at home. Not really surprised either way. And the Packers and the Texans is the final game of the week. I really believed in the Packers here. I was 100% right. The Packers were up 21 to nothing at halftime. The Packers won 35 to 20. And I would say that maybe the key phrase here is Green Bay was imperfect, but dominant. Devontae Adams was, it was the second game back from injury. He was back to full form. Aaron Rodgers looked really good. There were a couple times where I thought Aaron Rodgers didn't have a lot of time in the pocket, was running around a little bit more than I would have expected, you know, from the score. But I I just, all in all, I mean, it's just a pretty mundane, dominant game by the Packers. They were really good. Um, I love watching Deshaun Watson. I feel bad for Deshaun Watson. And uh, I'm curious what the Texans do next for their head coach. But, I mean, really, ultimately, for predictions versus reality, I don't find games that I, I predict right very interesting because like I exactly what I said was going to happen happened, and it wasn't very exciting. There was no twist or turn. It was just a, a better team beat a okay to average to maybe below average team. And for me, there's not much detail or storytelling there when it's, you're like, yeah, what exactly what we expected to happen did happen. And it wasn't like it, it wasn't like I made some crazy prediction. It just wasn't very interesting to me, the Packers-Texans game. I'm like, ah, yeah. The better team won. Now, I need some water first real quick. I want to give a shout-out to two quarterbacks in the Big Ten. I want to start with Justin Fields. The dude was phenomenal in Ohio State's opening game against Nebraska. Justin Fields looked really, 
really good. He made some beautiful throws. He had a throw to Garrett Wilson over the middle for a great touchdown where that's an NFL ball. That's an NFL high-level throw. And I, I really am impressed. Justin Fields very clearly worked very hard on refining his mechanics in the offseason. The guy's got this awesome stroke where he's using his core to generate more force. I love his follow-through at the end. And I, I really, when I watched Justin Fields in week one, Ohio State versus Nebraska, week one for the Big Ten, Justin Fields has more command throwing the ball. I mean, straight up, I just I go, wow, Justin Fields is better as a passer this year than he was last year. And maybe part of it is, you know, he's got more starts under his belt, and he knows the offense better. He looks a little bit sharper. But I really, I'm all in on the fact that I think Justin Fields got better at throwing the football this offseason, working on little things and probably handling the ball more often. Uh, and I'm just glad Justin is in college getting more starts, getting more starts under his belt. I'm excited, man. By the way, as you know, Justin Fields runs the ball like a running back as well. And so it's only one game, but in game one, Justin Fields was amazing. And if that is how, if Nebraska was any indication of the consistent play we're going to see from Justin Fields, if he plays like that every week, I actually would say that and it's funny how far the pendulum will swing, but I've been waiting for... Here's what I've always loved about Justin Fields. He's a crazy good athlete. He works incredibly hard. People like him. He's a great guy. I wanted to see his arm talent get better. It looks like it did. And week one, timing, accuracy, ball location. The word is command. He's in more command of the ball than he was last year. I actually think that if this continues, if week one happens the rest of the year, all year. I think Justin Fields would be a better option as the number one overall pick than Trevor Lawrence. And I, people have decided already Trevor Lawrence is the guy. I get it. But Justin Fields has an ability physically to run that is far greater than Trevor Lawrence. It's just, it's a fact. And if he's making throws like he did against Nebraska, NFL throws with high-level arm talent, and great anticipation. Oh, yeah, by the way, he runs like a running back. I I think Justin Fields might be the preferred number one overall pick if coaches were choosing. So keep your eye on that. Justin Fields, uh, to his credit, looked phenomenal week one. He's done a lot of work. He looks really good throwing the football. Uh, and I, I was very, very impressed with the way Justin Fields played week one, for Ohio State at least, against Nebraska. I say week one because it's like it's not week one of college football, but it's week one for Ohio State. It's a weird gray area, so whatever. I also want to give a shout-out to the Wisconsin quarterback, Graham Mertz. He killed it week one. Uh, they they shredded Illinois. And uh, it's really sad because Graham Mertz has given us kind of a roller coaster of a story where he was phenomenal week one, and then he got covid and because the Big Ten has the most stringent COVID restrictions, it appears, in college football, Graham Mertz is going to have to be in quarantine for 21 days, meaning he's going to miss three weeks of college football. Three more games before Graham Mertz plays again. It's like, oh, I feel kind of robbed because I, Graham Mertz was becoming one, one of my most interesting and exciting and favorite stories in college football. Gone. Taken away. We're not going to see him for another month, basically. 
Because it looked like, to me, Wisconsin had finally found their best quarterback since Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson was incredible, but Russell Wilson transferred in. Russell Wilson was not recruited homegrown at Wisconsin. He was only there for one year, and he bounced to the NFL. Graham Mertz is a redshirt freshman. He has four years of eligibility, and he looked phenomenal. Graham Mertz, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for so long. Wisconsin's always been a good program. They run the ball well. And I've always said, if you're a quarterback in high school, and you look at a program like Wisconsin or LSU, and you go, they have everything. They just need a quarterback. And you're confident in your ability? Go there. Dominate there. And Justin Mertz looks like that guy where he made great decisions. And he completed all of his easy passes, share screens, easy out routes, stuff like that. But Graham Mertz was completing not just the easy stuff. He was completing, he had a great ball down the left sideline. He had a throw for a touchdown where he, he throws it high up top of the end zone, makes his guy go up and get it. Perfect ball location. That's an NFL throw. I am really, really curious to see how Graham Mertz does when he gets back from his injury or from his, I guess, from, from his COVID quarantine. Um, you know, you also got to remember that how is the attention going to impact Graham Mertz? Graham Mertz was a guy, he was an All-American in high school. You would think he's used to attention, the media attention he got, the national media attention he got from week one. You would think, no problem, he's handled it, he's been there before. But sometimes when a guy has this crazy moment and then has a long time to think about it, you can psych yourself out. So I think he's going to handle it fine, but we'll see in three weeks. Uh, we're going to get more Graham Mertz at some point. I can't wait for it. So I'm curious, how does Graham Mertz do when he comes back from his COVID quarantine? And then how does Wisconsin do in the time that Graham Mertz is not there? You have an NFL quarterback not playing. I 2020, oh man, it's just so frustrating because I, I just want it to be over. I just I want regular football with practice every day and no weird COVID restrictions and no stories like this where people like Graham Mertz, who are just a, a really young, up-and-coming, incredible football player, are not playing. I, I envy and look forward to the day that COVID is no longer something we are talking about it seems like every single day in the sports world and in the world in general I mean I I like I, I hate wearing the mask it's annoying but I, really what is disappointing is that a guy like Graham Mertz who is I, I my favorite story in college football right now just got sidelined for a month it's like oh man what a loss what a disappointing frustrating loss it's like oh man I just I wish Graham Mertz was playing I, I really am disappointed about that it makes me sad and uh, keep your eye on Graham Mertz, how that story develops down the road at Wisconsin. All right, final topic of the day. Need some water real quick first, I guess. On Sunday, we had the Portuguese Grand Prix. Really fun race to watch. Uh, crazy technical track, a lot of verticality. Very visually appealing for me. I, I mean, this track has one of the best onboards you'll see in F1. Where And then also, by the way, there's those sweeping... Helicopter shots where you you follow. It's like a roller coaster where you have these fast hills racing upward and then really racing downhill and you go over the crest and then there's the camera will swoop around to follow the track and the, the car goes up and down. It's like, oh, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. I really, really love, I think, Portugal, whatever. I forget the name of the track there. That's an incredible track that I, I want to see more races there. Again, it's visually very, very appealing. 
especially when you have a guy like Lewis Hamilton dominating. You got, I need other stuff to care about to pay attention to. Lewis Hamilton won. Uh, he got all the attention. It's a new record where Lewis Hamilton has now won the most races ever by an F1 driver. He's now won 92 races in F1. Um, and I, great. I really, he broke Michael Schumacher's record. We knew he was probably going to do it in this race. I mean, it's not, it's deflating when it's not surprising for Lewis Hamilton to dominate. So it's like, great, like, great, great. It's amazing. Really, it is amazing. Uh, He's an incredible driver. It just wasn't surprising. So I didn't care very much. You know what I mean? As shameful as it is to admit. I really think that Sergio Perez, the driver who racing point deserves a lot of credit here in this race. Uh, Turn one, turn one, turn two, very early in lap one of the race, uh, he spun out. So Sergio Perez found himself in last place, basically immediately in the race. And then over the course of the race, he fought all the way back. He ended up in P7. He was actually in P5 at one point, and then his tires kind of, they were worn, and he lost lost some pace, uh, and uh, uh, who passed him? It was uh, not Ricardo. It was uh, Gasly. And, and maybe it was Ricardo that passed him. Somebody, two people passed him. It's in my notes here. Let me find it real quick. Two people passed Ricardo. It was, a, ah, it was Lando. It was a Charles Leclerc. Lando, no, nope, that's, let me find it. I, I got this. I'll find it. I'll find it. I can't. Anyways, it was sad. Sergio Perez ended up in P7. I thought it was impressive the way that Sergio Perez fought back in the race. Now, uh, here's what happened in the race. Lewis Hamilton got first. Valtteri Bottas got second. Uh, Max Verstappen got third. Charles Leclerc got fourth. Uh, so Charles Leclerc, uh, I, I don't have who got sixth. I, I think Daniel Ricciardo. I don't remember. But either way, now as a result in the standings of F1, uh, and the drivers, you have Lewis Hamilton with 256 points, Valtteri Bottas with 179. In third place, you have Max Verstappen with 162. I'm curious if Max Verstappen can challenge Valtteri Bottas. Uh, certainly nobody's going to challenge Lewis Hamilton. But maybe Max Verstappen can steal second place in the driver's standings from Valtteri Bottas by the end of the year. The battle for fourth, though, is really, really fun. Currently in fourth place, you have Daniel Ricciardo with 80 points. Then you have Charles Leclerc with 75 points. Sergio Perez with 74 points. Lando Norris with 65 points. And it feels like any of the guys I just listed, Daniel Ricciardo, Charles Leclerc, Sergio Perez, or Lando Norris, any one of those guys feels like someone who can come and grab fourth place. That's really exciting to me. And then in the dry, in the constructors cup, you have, you know, one and two, there's no contest. Mercedes has 435 points. They're going to win, uh, unless they, everything falls apart and they catch on fire and they don't finish. I, I think even then, I don't know how Mercedes wouldn't win this year. They, they won. Um, Red Bull is going to get second. They have 226 points, but the battle for third place, this is where, gets very exciting. It's between three teams currently in third place. You have Racing Point with 126 points. Right behind him in fourth, you have McLaren with 124. And then Renault in fifth with 120. The battle for fourth place in the driver's standings and the battle for third in the Constructors' Cup, that is what will be exciting down the stretch as we come to the end of the F1 season. I'm excited to watch it. Uh, we got another race coming up this weekend. I cannot wait. And uh, that's all I have, guys. I love you so much. I appreciate you. That's the podcast. I uh, Hard week, man. You, you heard the in- intro to the show. It's just terrible. Tell the people in your life you love them, you care about them. Don't ignore them. Don't, don't waste your time. Tell the people in your life you love them. Go see them. Go talk to them. Can't encourage that enough. Hope you have a great day. Ba-dum-bum. Bam. We are.